Hello, beautiful listeners. Editing Kyla here, popping in to forewarn you that the following conversation is about medical assistance in dying. And as such, there will be some conversation around suicide. If you are feeling at risk, I have linked to the suicide prevention website in our notes. And we encourage you to call the 24 7 Talk Suicide Canada line if you are feeling as though you could use some immediate assistance. The following conversation is with one of our regular guests, Megan Linton, who treats the subject with a great deal of dignity and respect, and I hope that you are able to take good care of yourselves while listening to our episode. If you feel like you are not in a space to engage with this subject matter at this time, take care of yourselves. All right, here we go. Can euthanasia ever be just in an unjust society? Hello, and welcome to Pullback, where we explore big new ideas and ask, is this a real solution or a distraction? Pullback is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network of Progressive Canadian Podcasts. I'm Kristen Pugh, and I'm here with my co-host, Kyla Hewson. On today's episode, we talk to disabilities justice expert Megan Linton about Canada's medical assistance and dying program, how it works, its limitations, and where expansions may take it. Megan is the host of Invisible Institutions, which is a documentary podcast exploring the past and present of institutions for people labeled with intellectual and developmental disabilities in Canada. It's a fantastic show, and we highly recommend it. This can be a heavy topic, but Megan does an absolutely wonderful job of wading through these murky waters with us. And if you stick around to the end, you'll get to hear me lend her my magic wand and... Megan will tell us what the solutions are to all of our problems. <laughs> if you enjoy this conversation, please show your love with a five-star review on your preferred listening platform. All right, bippity-boppity-boo. Megan, thanks so much for joining us to talk about medical assistance in dying. And just to get started, you were doing a press conference yesterday that is somewhat related to this topic, although not totally on the same topic. So how, how'd that go? It was really good, I think, in that we had a pretty good turnout for a really, it's been like a really tight timeline. And so the press conference was about my friend, Michael Calazan, who is 39 and doesn't have family care. And so he is trying to get access to the supports he needs so he isn't institutionalized into a long-term care home which he has made clear that he doesn't want to live in a long-term care home because he'd have to quit his job and leave his community and his life. And so if that was the only solution, then he would, he already applied for medical assistance in dying. And so we're trying to find access to the supports he needs to live in community and continue his life. And so yeah, it, it's been like a really intense few weeks. And like for Michael, it's been a really intense last five years. And so just trying to to get the pressure up and it was a tight turnaround and we did it in time. And there was like a lot of people who came and Michael is so brilliant. And I think it 
it's really important to be able to like hear his story in his own words. And so, yeah, I'm really grateful that we could put that together. Some people who have listened to our podcast before have probably heard about your show, Invisible Institutions, uh, where you talk about the institutionalization of persons with disabilities. But can you maybe just for somebody that hasn't heard about that, maybe through Michael's story, maybe just in general, talk about institutionalization and why it's a problem? Yeah. So institutionalization is the practice of warehousing people with disabilities into institutions. There's lots of different kinds of them. And so this can happen through group homes or nursing homes or long-term care homes or any other form of institution like a psych institution or a prison. And so in practice, what it means is that someone is removed from community put somewhere geographically different from where they are located and removed the autonomy to hire and choose their caregivers and instead are subject to the conditions of the institution, which are largely driven by private profit and private motives. And um, even if they're not necessarily for profit, like neoliberalism and capitalism more broadly, make it such that every institution is on an austerity budget. And so the conditions are that of a austerity. And so across Canada, if you include nursing homes, which I do because they're the largest form of institution, and so many people like Michael who are not older but also people who are older and who have cognitive disabilities like dementia are institutionalized into nursing homes. And so with that, there's over 250,000 people in Canada who are living in these conditions. And it is the primary response to the needs of people who require a certain amount of, of care support. And as Michael demonstrate so clearly in community, he's entitled right now to six and a half hours of care, but in a nursing home that they're trying to subject him to, he would have less than three hours of caregiving a day. And so in practice, that would mean a lot of not having access to toileting support, not having access to meals on time. And for like all of those reasons, you're not able to really be meaningfully involved in the community because you don't actually have any access to time. Yeah, I think this is really important context to start the show with because we're going to talk about medical assistance and dying. And there certainly are circumstances in which medical assistance and dying can be a good thing. But it's really important to sort of ground that context in the very deep seated problems we have in society, one of which is institutionalization. Another one that I'm sure we'll talk about is like endemic poverty and completely unaffordable housing. And these things really do connect into the debate. So um, thanks for sharing that. And I guess we'll, we'll plug this in our, um, in our episode notes as well. But just for folks uh, right now, if they want to do something to help Michael's case, uh, what should they do? Great question. Thanks for asking it. They should write a letter to Sylvia Jones, who's the Minister of Health, telling her to take a meeting with Michael 
and that they need to find an urgent solution uh, to his care needs so that he is able to remain in community. And also they can donate to Michael's GoFundMe because he is having to privately pay for so many of his supports right now. Yeah, during all of this, he's working like 60-hour weeks. Yeah, I read a stat a while back that it can be like as much as twice as expensive to live with a disability. You know, we re- it's really not something that we factor into when we think about things like what is a living wage. Yeah, totally. And I think like something that's so important to understand is the cost of of living in a place where healthcare isn't actually universally accessible, where it's not publicly funded entirely, and you have to scramble together so many of the pieces because really like all the provinces read the bare minimum requirements of the Canadian Health Act and treat it with such like anger. For somebody that hasn't heard about medical assistance in dying, what is it and what's the the argument, the basic argument for and against allowing it? Yeah, for sure. So I want to maybe give context that like I am a death doula. I'm someone with very significant disability that like has a, a life span associated with it. And I'm also like someone grounded in disability theory. And so that's kind of how I approach this. And so I think I just want to be clear in that because I have a lot of like experience with death and dying. And and I think that it's important to bring these ideas together because so much of it is about like ableism and what we consider a good life. But Now, to the question of what is medical assistance in dying? So medical assistance in dying is a criminal code provision that allows physicians to end the life of people with disabilities and people at the end of their lives. So people who are sick and disabled, typically. It happens through several medications that draw your life to a close. It's not painless, uh, often comes with pain medication. And so it's a, it's a criminal code provision that allows doctors to end lives um, because if anyone else did it, it would be murder. And euthanasia came from the phrase good death. And I think there's like a very particular understanding of what a good life and a good death is. And like often that turn of phrase is is a, not about the person dying. It's about the people around them who don't have to see them suffering. I don't know if it comes from like good death in terms of like that it's like really a great thing or a peaceful process because I think there's been some significant medical evidence that it's not a particularly peaceful death but yeah that's that's the that's the basis it resulted after a supreme court challenge surely there are painless ways to assist someone in dying or am i i i don't know anything about 
I mean, I know a little bit about death, but I don't know anything about like the the way a physician might administer something. So so why do we not offer a painless solution? I guess is I know this seems like uh, maybe that seems like a left field question, but like that's what I picked up on from your description. I'm like, why? Why? <laughs> because it is like a your body like fights back. That's what bodies are like meant to do is uh, fight against death. And so I I don't know too much about the science of it. <laughs> I, I did read like, um, I'm trying to think of the report that I read about why they said it was painful, but they go through like quite significantly how if you know much about like the death penalty in the States. And so it's like a very similar chemical cocktail and it's not one that like has worked seamlessly. That's a good question. And I think I I'm sure that technology will change, but that's where we are now. Yeah. And I mean, just to, to go into, you know, maybe the rationale by which it was allowed. Um, is it not that for some people it's been seen as a way out of immense suffering? Are there some cases in which you think that it would be okay? Some people in the disability community don't think that there's ever a time that it should be given because the end of life or a terminal illness is not actually like a complete view into the future. Like doctors aren't able to say if someone is terminal, then their life will end in X amount of time. As a result, like many people live for much longer time than they're given by the doctors and their quality of life is better always than doctors perceive because doctors are so trained to think that disabled life is inherently like worse quality. And so I don't know. Um, And I think that's okay. I think that it's okay to be unsure about some of these things where, yeah, I see people suffering and see people really struggling. I think it's difficult to draw that line because of how significant our palliative care system is failing people, how few people have access to it, and how that contributes to the suffering that people experience because so few people have access to pain meds, so few people have access to palliative care such that it's hard to think about what it would be like if our healthcare system was not collapsing and providing these gaping holes that produce suffering, that maintain suffering, and that proliferate suffering on such a significant scale. Just to sort of maybe sum up the the dilemma that maybe we're talking about, in general, there's a really difficult question that is maybe unanswerable about like where you put the balance between an individual's autonomy and the duty to protect even if we had a perfect society, it might be really hard to answer that question, but that's not the context that we live in. And it sounds to me like you're arguing, and please let me know if I'm mischaracterizing, that like given the deep, deep failures of our health system, um, it may 
not be just at all. Yeah, it's hard to know what it would be like to live in a society that wasn't fundamentally ableist and that wasn't like fundamentally geared towards thinking that it's better to not have a catheter than to have a catheter or that we like still make jokes about people being in diapers. And since we so categorically reject the the difference and the changes that happen with dying and with death and with sickness, it makes it really, really hard to know that even if our healthcare system was funded, if we're like maintaining the systems of like racial capitalism and extractive economies and like if we maintain capitalism, that's going to maintain like the suffering of so many people. And so it's not just about adequately funding our healthcare system. It's also about like liberating our health systems and producing a society that is like just total abolition. Okay. So it's impossible to really answer that question in the system that we live in because the system that we live in produces so much suffering apart from what a person may be experiencing at the end of their life, or it exacerbates what they may be experiencing at the end of their life, such that we are going to a medical assistance and dying solution before we are going to other solutions, which is really what I'm getting is like the number one problem. Yeah, totally. And like, I don't think that means alienating people in suffering or the end of their lives. I think it means like a I'm running towards it, like uh, showing up and tending to what people need. And right now, it might be that some people need medical assistance in dying because they're experiencing such prolific suffering from the like state, which has a monopoly on violence. And that's the really challenging piece. And and I think it's like important that people know that like. Right now, we do abandon people in their suffering, and we as a society have very little capacity for showing up for really sick people. I also wanted to sort of pick back up the the thread about ableism, because it's something that is really interesting, and I, I find myself parsing through, because I think a lot of us, um, and this is like very much for myself, you know, there's unconscious ableism that I'm like sorting through myself just as a person and that a lot of people carry with them. And it it made me think about, so my mom is very in favor of euthanasia for herself. It's one of those, the opinions she's been the clearest about for her, for most of my adult life. And you just made me think about it in a new way, which is kind of a really interesting thing because for her and I'm not sure. This is my, this is how I've always viewed it. Maybe her reasons are different, Um, but I've always seen it in the context of her watching. um, She was caring for my grandma when she was dying of lung cancer. And I think she took that experience um, and she said, you know, for myself, I don't really want this at the end of my life. But there's a bunch of embedded ableism in that and assumptions that may not be right. So it even, you know, very well-intentioned perspectives that are really rooted in the self can have all of these unconscious biases associated with them um, that, you know, if she were experiencing it in real time, may not turn out to be true. And I hadn't thought about it that way. So really interesting. 
Kristen, I think that's a really good point. And I can say the same thing about my grandmother, who I think for her, she's afraid of losing um, her capacity in her in her mind, right? So uh, whether that's dementia or whatever ends up happening, she's afraid of not being able to know herself anymore. And I always find it fascinating to have this conversation because when she's in that point, it's really mine or my my family's job to decide like, okay, this was her wishes before. Now she doesn't really understand what's going on. Do we still follow her wishes prior to this? Or if she seems to be perfectly happy, do we just let her carry on? Yeah. And I think like I feel such deep empathy for both of them. I think for your mom, it's being in the experience of being a caregiver. And because the state doesn't provide any support, it's it's hard. It's really hard. It's really tiring. And people don't know how to under, like respond. They don't know how to show up in ways that make sense. And that's really hard. And like, it's hard to watch someone not be helped by the medical system, whether that be like experiencing cancer pain and not getting the drugs needed when there's like so many things they can do. Someone in my immediate family has been recently diagnosed with pretty late stage cancer. And to get the proper medication that would really help ease their suffering, they have to pay out of pocket. That's exactly it. Like we're just set up to make people suffer. I think especially at the end of life, you know, like that's not necessary. Like that's not what's possible. It's so sad. And like, I think I was going to go to your grandma, um, <laughs> which I think like, I also feel so much like compassion towards because I think we've been taught for so long that like not having capacity means that you don't have, and like legally, if you don't have a certain level of capacity, you lose so many of your rights and freedoms. And that's really hard to know that you're like walking into that. But one of the most recent changes in legislation makes it such that people can make advanced directives. I think that one makes me so sad because people immediately assume that with a diagnosis, your life is automatically going to get worse when it can just be different and it can just be a different life and a different way of living that you don't necessarily, didn't necessarily know could be before. I think for myself, if like, if I knew that I could find so much joy and pleasure and community in being disabled. If I came into it, into like diagnoses as a, at a different age or like in a different perspective, like if I made the decision before that said, if I get to this level of disability, then you should end my life, then I wouldn't be alive probably, you know? And so I think it's like this immediate assumption that disability is always bad and only ever makes your life bad. And it can just be different. Like people have different capacity, like cognitive capacities at various times, whether that's like 
using drugs and getting super high and being like a weirdo on mushrooms or experiencing psychoses and like meeting different people or plants that you didn't know before. Like, I think these are all the like pieces of the disability community of like recognizing like that's freaking cool. Like it's great to be in a different state of mind that can just be different and something to experience. And it doesn't necessarily need to be pathologized, need to be given a deadline. And I think like non-disabled people often don't get to see that part of disability. And so they go into it with the expectation that it'll be fucking brutal. And like, yeah, disability poverty is fucking brutal. It's so brutal and inaccessible environments and lack of access to the medical care you need and all those things. Yeah, they're terrible. Like they're so hard, but that's not about being disabled. That's about living in a capitalist health state. And there's a difference there. I'm wondering if you can can talk to us a little bit, because I think for for a lot of people, medical assistance and dying can be like very abstract. I think people have very little understanding of what it actually looks like to apply for it and things like that. So I'm wondering if you can can walk us through that. Yeah, there are two applications you have to go through. Typically, it's you have your first consultation right now. Medical assistance in dying includes people with disabilities, so not mental disabilities at this point, but I'm sure we'll get to this. It's on the horizon. So if you're a person with a disability who experiences suffering, then you are eligible. And so your first assessment is an eligibility assessment where they'll monitor your state of mind and go through what your suffering is. And then you have three months later, you have your second assessment. At that point, if you want to proceed, you get to pick your timeline. Um, And then you schedule an appointment. And unlike many different supports in Canada, you can access it in your home. And so you can die at home or in a maid hotel or in a hospital. So what do we know so far about who is accessing a medically assisted death in Canada? There's been a very steady increase in access to medical assistance in dying in Canada. So for the first piece, it was people primarily at the end of their life. So that was anyone with a terminal diagnosis, which you know, as we explained before, and that has its limits, but it's been five years. And the first year there was 1,018 people who died accessing MAID. In 2021, there was 10,064 people. That's a, a massive increase. In 2021, that was the first year that there was access to not end of life death. And so they represent 4.8% of all deaths in Canada. You had mentioned earlier that there has been 
a planned expansion and it's been put on pause for now, but can you talk a little bit about what the the expansion would be if it goes forward and, and maybe also why they've paused it? So MADE already expanded. So when it first came into effect, it was just for people at the end of their life. Now it's expanded to include people with disabilities. So people with like pain conditions, with like pretty long life expectancies, so forth, um, can access it. And the expansion is for children. So what's called mature minors. And then people with mental disorders So this would be anything that's part of the DSM, whether that's intellectual or developmental disability like autism, major depression, various forms of bipolar, and expanded to include early decision-making. And so those three pieces would expand the number of people who have access to it like exponentially. Because, yeah, I don't know about you, but I know very few people without a psychiatric disorder. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. If you think about like one in five people would be eligible under the expanded criteria. It's pretty interesting. It's horrific. Like that one of the questions is like, are you feeling suicidal when you're accessing MADE? You're like, well, obviously, yes. So assuming that this goes through, why would someone choose to access MAID through their doctor as opposed to just ending their life on their own? Yeah, I mean, speaking as someone who has attempted suicide, it's not the easiest task. And yeah, it's like it requires some effort, requires planning, requires um, access to materials. With suicide, it's more difficult. Like you, there's many, many, many survivors of suicide out there. There's no survivors of MADE. Women right now are less likely to complete suicide. And so it would, in my opinion, drastically increase the number of women who die by suicide because currently how suicide plays out, that's like very much how the data breaks down, but people would access it because it's, I think like in many cases, like it's, it's more comfortable. It doesn't require any like possibilities of intervention or like interactions with police or like any of those pieces. And there's like a lot of shame when you survive suicide. I think it's often like pathologized. And so If you talk about suicide openly with people, sometimes like that'll result in you being incarcerated and put into psych hold. If you talk about made with people, many people's experiences are different, but it's not as like immediately result in your incarceration. Whereas like the way in which the mental health act is written, if you express intent for suicide, That means your therapist or like whoever has to report you, right? So yeah, uh, there's like different legal levers in effect for made and suicide. So it's not just to say 
stigma, but also like the way in which our psychiatric systems are maintained and upheld. One of the concerns that I had sort of read about in terms of the expansion of MAID is just fairness and consistency. So is the health system prepared? There seem to be rules that contradict each other. Um, It doesn't seem to be clear that doctors are applying the same criteria. Um, Is that something that you've heard as well? Yeah, there's definitely like a lack of, and I think this is the issue with like terminal illness and like suffering at large, like as a concept is like, it's all on the whim of a doctor. Like doctors have express authority in these instances to determine if someone can die. And like, if you look at like a class history of who doctors are, like they're often defend the interests of the ruling class. Like that's their primary stakeholder. They are concerned with health system functionality and maintaining health at all costs. And health to them is like what Artie Vierkant and Beatrice Adler Bolton called like a biological fascist fantasy. That's true. That's like what they're in for. And like, that's not to say that all doctors are fascist, but recognizing that the healthcare system is like fundamentally built on racial hierarchy and an inherent belief that disabled life is bad and in need of cure or an end. I think any person with ovaries who's interacted with like reproductive healthcare um, in any way, like knows the severe biases that um, the health system has. And we've certainly been hearing a lot about racism in the medical system. No. And like it so drastically impacts your access to things that make your life better, make you have less suffering. I think we like, we brought that you brought this up on the last episode I was on of like doctors being able to prescribe access to parks. There's good doctors who would love to be able to act prescribe housing. Like if we look at like doctors against the police or any of those supports, like they recognize that like these systems are are fundamentally like causing harm, but like at large that's not what medical schools teach and as a result like it determines who again gets access to pain meds who gets access to like clinical drugs who get a- gets access to referrals or yeah all of those those pieces and i mean i think that goes to like some of the concerns we were talking about earlier with with made right in terms of vulnerability and these inherent injustices in our system that are driving people to apply to die, basically. And it's it's really tricky to know, aside from just we should fund our healthcare system better and end our housing crisis and end poverty. Like how, how do you, I guess we should just do those things. But <laughs> But like knowing that we're probably not going to do those things how how can we sort of support autonomy while also trying to protect people? It's a really tough question. Yeah. And 
I think that means that people have to fight like hell against the systems that propel us. And that means fighting for the return of autonomy to health for Indigenous communities who have really loudly protested against MAID because they're, first of all, don't have access to healthcare systems on reserve and then push people off reserve to access healthcare systems where they don't have community or supports or access to any form of cultural or familial or like language rights. And where we see such a significant suicide crisis, I will never forget the Senate testimonies from elders and leaders who said, like, we have been fighting against a suicide crisis for a decade and no one has done anything. And now you want to give expand this. Like, I think that when we think about autonomy, it's, it's so often in the case of made operationalized by like people who are really big on rights as like the framework. And for so many people, they've never had access to rights to begin with. And so like it as a theoretical concept of like having the right to make decisions about your life. And that's like such an individualist view of the world and like so European and doesn't keep in mind the broader fight for autonomy that people are making where people are fighting to get access to the services that they deserve and require, where people are fighting for their like sovereignty against these systems that now are only expanding their access to death. I think that there's a real lack of understanding of like how sick we're making so many people in our world of like, do people have the autonomy to choose that they were like subject to environmental racism and like colonial violence that resulted in their entire community getting cancer? Like, so where was the autonomy there and why now? Like, why now? Why this piece? I think we can do more than that and fight for justice, which is like what'll have to come first and whether that's like health justice and making sure people have access to the care they need, making sure that like medical care isn't discriminatory and based in a belief that walking is better than rolling or taking medication is better than working less and like you can get access to the surgeries you need and you can get supports where like those services aren't based on on funding decisions. I think we need so much justice and 
also like this is about our collective struggles against systemic ableism, like misogyny in the healthcare system. I think if we like look at it's called Bleed. It's a new book that just came out by Tracy Lindemann about the experiences of misogyny in um, endometriosis care. It's about shattering those things and finding new approaches based in health justice, based in people having access to the traditional medicines that they sought like territorially entitled to. I think there's so many battles that we're facing that we need to be able to support people in society and cherish them. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And it's something that's been missing from a lot of the discourse around MAID. There's been a fair amount of news coverage about the expansion of MAID and the problems going on with that. And those discussions typically center around technical fixes to MAID, right? Can you train professionals uh, better? Can you have a more standardized approach? But what you're getting at is, is really, for MAID to work better, we don't necessarily just need to focus on the system of institutionalizing dying through these applications, but we also need to improve justice in the lives of people. Um, and that really uh, fundamentally goes back to to solidarity and fighting ableism. So I think that's a really good place to go. And I think like it's so crucial to link all of these pieces together because they're inextricable. And if we like look at what the conditions are like right now at people's end of life, whether that be not accessing the pain care they need, or that being that they've spent the last year in long-term care in like a facility that is actively making them sicker, making their bed sores worse, giving them infections, giving them repeat COVID infections. Like we need to radically alter our end-of-life care and I think that there's so much urgent action that needs to take place that might seem overwhelming to be able to like give good deaths like euthanasia, like the Latin that we started talking about, then we need to make some serious changes and think about those pieces that are so crucial. And like, I think it's exciting to think about those things because we're in such a horrific spot right now. Yeah. So like before people start prescribing made, maybe they could look at why are you accessing this? How can we help you in those? Because it's, it's, there's always something, right? Like the, like your friend that we were talking about at the start of the episode, I'm sure that made is not their first choice. It's like a last resort. Yeah, exactly. And I think with so many people, the solution is so clear that what is needed is greater access to care. And like right now, our entire society is structured around 
like maintaining capital. And so we have a real crisis in care supports and we pay care workers like shit and people burn out and get sick and disabled themselves. And like, these are real problems that have real solutions that like aren't actually that hard, but that require money. And we can't do that by having multi-billion dollar surpluses in spending each year, which is Ontario just reported a, a massive surplus in like where they didn't spend, I don't know the exact number, but they didn't spend a certain billion number of dollars in healthcare. And like, you can't tell me that that's not killing people. I know it's really, there was the whole, like during the early pandemic, there was the whole like whistleblower report that showed in long-term care, not only were people basically being subject to death due to COVID infections, just because we weren't willing to actually put the money into providing good conditions, but also people were like literally starving to death. And it is forever perplexing to me that the public seems to have forgotten about that. And we're just fine allowing the gutting and privatization of our healthcare system. I'll never understand it. Made is not a solution. I think we can all agree on that. It seems to be more of a distraction, kind of a band-aid to a sinking ship, which is never going to solve the issues that it's supposed to be addressing. I think I'm personally going to land on the side of like, it's everyone's personal choice whether they want to access something like this or not. But when it comes to legislation, maybe it shouldn't be the first place legislators are going. I think that's a fair assessment from my perspective. But Megan, I wanted to just ask a fun question to end on, uh, to kind of lift to lift the mood a little bit. <laughs> I, I'm going to give you a magic wand, and you can do anything you want with this magic wand. And I want you to fix the problems that we've been talking about in this episode. What does the world look like that you create with this magic wand that I've lent you? You're not even going to give it to her? <laughs> well, yeah, I'm going to need it back. I have to lend it to the next guest. <laughs> Sorry, Meg. <laughs> I have unlimited wishes. Is that what you said? Yeah, it's a wand. You can just cast as many spells as you want. Wow, damn. Okay, sick. I will. <laughs> and fossil fuel extraction in order to create new pools of labor in order to make more care workers who are all unionized of course but that those unions and those care workers will be like trained in various systems of care not just the biomedical but in support services whether that be like supportive care or just being chill and fun or <laughs> having like good politics, that means like caring about each other and not seeing care as like a one-way street. Like it's like a interdependent world. I feel like my wishes would just be like the 10 principles of disability justice, which is like collective liberation like everyone is fucking free and there isn't like a british monarchy ruling our country <laughs> and we have access to like all of the healthcare 
and all of the housing and all of the income that not just is like going to make us scrape by, but is going to make our lives like generative and fun and pleasurable. And that means like centering who is like the most sick and disabled and like using that as a guiding post. There's so many brilliant people in the disability oracle community of like, we're future tellers. And I think just cherishing and celebrating disability as like a central part of our human existence is is really what's key. No more like being forced to work and like not being able to pay for medication and thinking that work makes you inherently better. Like I think that right now, like that's such a big part of our society and it's so difficult to make people care about disability because we're taught that it's bad. That's a great use of a magic wand. Megan, thank you so much for joining us. Do you have any final thoughts you wanted to share? Be kind to yourself and each other and show up for people when they're in pain and suffering. And that doesn't mean like trying to fix things. It just means being there. And I think we could all use a bit more of that. Thank you to our listeners for joining us for this episode as well. We're looking forward to catching y'all on the next one. 